All right, so we're continuing on conflict resolution. And again, this is the conclusion of the series. What I wanted to do was we've talked about, in the very beginning of the series, we looked at the idea of the importance of going through conflict resolution with an attitude seeking to be careful to not unnecessarily enter into a conflict, but also to not unnecessarily raise it to a level that is not appropriate. We then talked about the various levels in greater detail, spent a good chunk of time on the one-on-one conflict, the special exceptions, times when you'd need to pull other people in, even though it's step one. We talked about step two and the various ways that witnesses can be used, how they can help to mediate conflict. They can be active witnesses who are part of a conversation, or they can be more passive and kind of listen to see what happened and to be able to report on that to a church court if the conflict were not able to be resolved. We talked about church courts and what occurs in them and their role and how those function and the different levels of them. And so now what we're talking about is I want to encourage you again to think about the importance of unity, to think about how conflict is not just for itself, not just so you can be right, not just so you can win. Conflict is for the glory of God. Conflict is for the glory of God. And forbearing, overlooking, being charitable, choosing to not engage in conflict should also be for the glory of God. It should not be just for our convenience, not just because we want to avoid conflict, and we also shouldn't enter into conflict for our convenience or because we just want to win. We need to glorify God, and so we think about God in conflict and also in not entering conflict by overlooking and forbearing. So I want to discuss and think about the goal of unity and the glory of God. Let me remind you, first of all, if you have the chance, I would encourage you to go read the beginning of the book of Ephesians. And to meditate upon what it says there. Because what it says is that God's purposes in creation and redemption are for his glory. That he has created in order to display who he is, what he is. And he saves in order to display who he is, what he is. And so his purpose is to show his own magnificence, his own glory, who he is. And so his attributes of justice and mercy are on display and how he deals with man. Now, we are called in Ephesians 4, having gone through chapters 1 through 3, which gives the doctrine of the gospel and the doctrine of God in clear order, we are presented with the behavior that ought to follow from. And so we're told at the beginning of Ephesians 4, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And there's points that follow that are things that help to describe the way that we should walk. And it gets to verse 3 where it says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so the unity of the Spirit is agreement about doctrine. It's unity in the doctrine of the Gospel and of what has been revealed to us in the Scriptures. Whatever we particularly know, And the bond of peace is the idea of being in the covenant of grace, being united together with baptism, being united together with the renewal of the covenant in the Lord's Supper, being united together in the reality that Christ represents us. So this bond of peace, whenever you see the word bond, I want you to think of covenant. I want you to think of oaths. The people are bound together by swearing. And so this idea of the the bond, the covenant of peace... There's peace with God and peace with neighbor, with brother, in this bond. Now, 
we have at the end of the chapter the idea of the gifts that were obtained by Christ for his church to mature the church. And it talks about officers. And so we have this idea of the work of officers to help to order doctrine for teaching so that the body of Christ can be edified so they can then edify each other and nurture and nourish each other. And so there's this working together of the parts. One way of trying to avoid conflict is avoiding doing anything useful together. You will have less conflicts if you don't do anything useful together. But that will abandon the goal. The goal is to glorify God. And so if we're going to do useful things together, we're going to rub each other the wrong way. We're going to annoy each other. We're going to do things differently than we would prefer. And so what you need to do is to realize how can you work with each other and at the same time not be consuming each other in conflict. So go to page two of the outline. So page two, talk about unity. And I want to remind you what unity is. Unity has to do with a shared understanding of what is true, a shared authority, the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. That you have a unity of goal. What are you trying to accomplish? And you can have unity of how you operate. Okay, so this is the unity that we have, that we are to seek to grow in. And so anybody who believes that the scriptures are the word of God and that Jesus Christ has paid for their sins has a minimal unity with us of having one Lord and having a shared authority of the word of God. And people are going to understand the scriptures in greater or lesser detail. And our goal is to help people to come along and have a greater knowledge of the scriptures so they can have a greater doctrinal unity and a greater agreement about how the scriptures teach us to behave. So we have a shared doctrine, a shared goal. What is that goal? Well, God himself has the goal of glorifying himself in the world in history. We are commanded as individuals to live our lives for his honor, for the praise of his name, for his glory, that he might be known in the earth by all the nations. And we are given his law, his commandments, to show us how to do that. Those are the means. Now, we'll unpack that in more detail and how the tools the Lord has given us for that, but I want to give you a couple of warnings. First, true unity is actually agreeing about doctrine, actually agreeing about the goal, and actually agreeing about how to achieve it. False unity agrees with a form of words, but disagrees about their meaning. So oftentimes, it is the objective of churches to figure out what the smallest possible statement of faith they can get away with would say. So that people who are serious would be willing to come, and people who are not serious will not be intimidated. And lots and lots of different doctrinal positions can be accommodated. If you have a desire for unity, your goal is going to be to communicate clearly, which is going to make other people who do not agree with you go away. Not because you necessarily want them to, but because they don't want to work through it with you, or they think you're wrong, or they don't think you're teachable, whatever. So the goal is to agree about what's true, and to not just have an appearance of agreement. Furthermore, it is not possible to cooperate in a way that honors the Lord 
without true unity. Proverbs say that two cannot walk together unless they are agreed. We are told to not be unequally yoked. In Nehemiah and Ezra, there were people who wanted to come in and help to build the temple. The Nehemiah and Ezra refused their participation and help. Even though they said they wanted to honor Yahweh, the God of the Bible. It is not merely the form of words that somebody says that they want to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. It is what Jesus, according to what authority. So who this Jesus is matters very much. And so we want to have a true unity and a cooperation that has unity, not in the absence of unity. And so the absence of unity can be an express disagreement where we seek to unite ourselves with people who plainly say they are not Christians, or it can be a fake or superficial unity with those who claim to agree with some form of words, and yet there is a disagreement about the doctrine, the goal, and the means. So what can we do to avoid that sort of fake or superficial unity? We are called to form ties that bind. We are called to use certain ordinances that the Lord has given to avoid being fragile. So some of those ordinances are baptism, which enters people in by a covenanting act to the body. The Lord's Supper, where people renew covenant. And every time you take the Lord's Supper, you are renewing your profession. You are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. You are re-covenanting with the Lord Jesus Christ and with your brothers. That idea of a covenant is a binding thing. And so we want to draw out for people the meaning of that so they can make public profession of their faith and swear to uphold the doctrine and swear to perform their duties. In order to do that, we need a clear way to distinguish the church from the world. And we must realize that the reality is the church is against the world. Not in the sense that we are seeking their harm, but in the sense that we are, sink- we are, we are pursuing antithetical goals. We should love our neighbors, even those who hate us, our enemies. And so the way we love our neighbor is by seeking their good and not creating a false sense of unity. What we must do is recognize that warfare between the city of God and the city of man and seek to liberate people from out of their slavery to Satan by speaking plainly to them and telling them that they are enslaved to Satan, that they need to be made free, and that the truth will set them free. In order for us to avoid being fragile, we have to have forms that help us to keep unity. And so having one form that can be used right, is being uniform. It is very common, very popular in our time to talk about unity in essentials, but not uniformity. Okay, well, forms, forms are the outward things. And a confession of faith is a form. It's a form of words. It's a pattern of words. And so the question is, if you have a confession of faith, what is its purpose except to say, this is what we believe the scriptures teach in summary form? If you don't agree with it, you should abandon it and repent. If you do agree with it, you should teach it 
and use it to say, here is what we stand for. That is a part of that form. You use confessions and catechisms, not as the authority. Scripture is overall. But those are the things where you say, here's the form of words that we use. Here is how we catechize. Here is how we teach people the basics. Here's how we draw people in and help them to understand where we are. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that the chief end of man, the goal is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so that's a commitment to a shared goal. And the explanation of the Ten Commandments, the form of government, the directory of worship are law that help us to know what means we have agreed to uphold. And so when we covenant with these forms, with each other, and with the Lord Jesus Christ, we are acknowledging to, that we will pursue this goal with these means according to the doctrine that we have agreed to. And so if we are to have those things that help us to have a form and to make it so that we can work together and to have commitments and ties that bind, then we should be pursuing to live life together in a way that helps us to build strong relationships inside of that structure. Those strong relationships would involve worshiping together. We have public worship. You have household worship. You have your secret worship that you, you pray for your brothers in private by yourself to God alone. We should fellowship together, which means that we work to accomplish goals. We work with each other in the same place, towards the same goals, so we can spend time doing useful things. And we've studied conflict resolution so that we know how to do that without being brittle. We should be hospitable and let people into our homes. We should be generous with each other and give them our time and resources and rejoice and enjoy the blessings of God together. That hospitality and generosity, it creates opportunities for frustration. When you let people into your lives, when you let people see into your private life, when you have people in your private spaces, what it does is it reveals to people all sorts of stuff and creates opportunity for conflict. It also creates opportunity for good work. This conflict is not, strife is not the guaranteed result. In fact, we are guaranteed that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to give us effectual dominion work together and he's going to cause us to disciple the nations so conflict is something that can be used for our good and if we are believers it is for our good and we should realize that it is not the end and it's not the thing that's going to stop us strife will not overcome the church the church will overcome strife by bringing about unity with the doctrine that is revealed in the scripture Unity will overcome strife. That can seem hard to believe because of the amount of disagreement that exists, but we need to apply the means that God has given and pray for His blessing upon it. And we must expect, we must work with hope that He will actually use these things to overcome our sin, the world, and the devil. And so the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ is made manifest as we, with hospitality and generosity, seek to bless each other and to share the word and to help each other. And as we see each other falling or go through distress and difficulty, coming alongside to weep with each other and to comfort each other. Think about that risk. The time when a person is weeping. Do you think that a person who's in great distress is more easily provoked than a person who is not? 
there is a great risk involved in weeping with those who weep. And yet we are called to do it. It is a good work where we risk because there is reward attached. There's opportunity to bless others and it honors the Lord. So coming alongside others when they are weeping and need of comfort is a great opportunity and it is also a time of risk. Generally, living together in a peaceable way, interpreting each other charitably, forbearing and covering and overlooking faults in love, giving peaceable and gentle rebukes. These are all things that are how we live life together. In order to do this, we need to have love for each other. So I've got love written down here four times because it's kind of important. And I'm going to explain it in some different ways. So first of all, love is valuing something, right? You've heard this from me. Love is valuing something. It's having a high valuation of this thing. So if you love God, you're going to have a high valuation of God and His glory. If you love God, you're going to want to know God yourself. If you love your neighbor, you're going to want to give other people the knowledge of God. So in order to value God properly, we need to study who He is. We need to study what man is. I would encourage you again, Ephesians 1 I think is an excellent chapter to help you to think about the glory of God and therefore the high valuation of Him. The, the mercy of God toward us. So the valuing of God and the knowledge of God is important for us to love each other and to love God. The desire for the glory of God, in other words the good of God, and the desire for your own good and for the good of others is another way you can define love. Right? So it's high valuations, one definition. You value something, you love it. If you want the good of somebody, you love them. Okay? So if we love God, we're going to seek to advance the mission that He has expressed, which is to show forth His glory, His beauty, the design that He has. And if we love our neighbor, we're going to seek to see Him rebuilt, renewed, restored, Now, we're also told in Scripture that love is obedience to the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ because that teaches us how to seek somebody's good. We don't know how to seek somebody's good unless we have instructions from God. And love is also described as a willingness to sacrifice things for the thing you love. So no great, there's no greater love than this than to lay down your life for your friends. And we're told that. So those are all things. So what is love? Love is, remember, is a is a obedience to the law. We are not justified. We're not counted as righteous before God because we love enough. We're not counted as good enough for God's favor because we love well enough. We are counted as righteous because Jesus perfectly kept the law in our place and stead as a substitute and representative. But we have been saved from our sin to righteousness. And so now, being saved, recognizing our guilt, Seeing the grace of God in the gospel, we are called to do good works for the glory of God. And love is a summary of those good works. I'll go to page three. If we desire the good of our neighbor, if we value God highly, if we want to glorify God, if we want to apply the law that God has given to us, and if we want to be willing to sacrifice for what is good, that would be a godly ambition. And I want to call all of you to a high and godly 
ambition. It is not worth living a life with no ambitions. It is not worth living a life where your ambition is simply to increase your pleasure, your money, to live long enough. Godly ambition is the desire for honor, excellence, and superiority by righteous means and for holy ends. We should seek to be known as an excellent people, not because we are excellent in ourselves, but because we want the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be praised in all the earth. And so a godly ambition seeks to live in a way that brings honor to you and to your Lord. That is excellent. That the excellency of Christ might be proclaimed and that is superior to the culture around you so that the superiority of Christ might be acknowledged. The examples of how to live that way, 1 Timothy chapter 3 it gives the qualifications of an elder. Every man, every man, every man ought to look at that list of qualifications and seek to be like that kind of man. Proverbs 31 gives to us a picture of the woman of valor. And every woman ought to strive to be like that woman. And Titus 2 talks about how older women and younger women should interact, how older men and younger men should interact. And it gives to us this view of our interactions in community. And so I encourage you to look at those texts and to think about where you fit in the Titus 2 arrangement. And I encourage you, if you're a man, to look at 1 Timothy 3, and as a woman, Proverbs 31, but also 1 Timothy 3 has the deacon's wife and the qualifications of a deacon's wife. And so women, I'd encourage you to look at that too. Now I have a few copies of a book that I want to offer. One of the other things about godly ambition is thinking about how we want the community to look. And there's an excellent little book by John Owen called Rules for Walking in Fellowship. I think I got like four or five left over there and this one. And I will give them to whoever wants them. And I encourage you to look at them. It talks about how to live in such a way as to help to encourage unity. And what it has is some little descriptions and then a bunch of scripture quotes on each of these little rules. It's an excellent book. And Mr. Cordova, I think, principally went through a number of things talking about them a few years ago. And so I would encourage you to get this little booklet and to read it. If more people want it than what we have available, we can buy more copies if it's still in print. But a godly ambition. What do we want our church to say about the Lord Jesus Christ by the way it behaves? So in order to fulfill this godly ambition, we, ha we have a goal of the glory of God. We want to live in a way to bring honor, to display the excellency of Christ, the superiority of Christ in all things. And so what we need is moderation and self-control. You've heard me reference the Greek term epiakeia a lot. So moderation and self-control. This is governance of the self to avoid extremes of action that are contrary to or destructive of the goal. Moderation results in steadiness of the performance of a chosen policy so that fitting actions are chosen with consistency in sequence through the duration of time and difficulty to make advances toward the goal. So the steady choosing of actions that follow a policy. 
What do you want to do? What do you want to accomplish? What do you want your life to be pointed at? And do you live in a manner where there's a steady following of that policy? You might call this self-rule or self-mastery, gentleness, right? the controlling of strength, meekness, the not using of your strength to be destructive in foolish ways. This is rightful dominion exercised over yourself. Now, fortitude, the shortest version I could give for you what fortitude is, Strength of mind. Strength of mind. Fortitude is strength of mind. And it comes from wisdom residing in your heart. The wisdom of Scripture. Okay? You think about what we read in Ephesians chapter 4. One of the things it talks about is this idea of the truth being well established so that we won't be blown about by every wind of doctrine. The maturing of the Christian so that you won't be blown about. Fortitude is that stability that comes from wisdom. It's that strength of mind that comes from wisdom. Wisdom gives perspective about the changeableness of life, the vicissitudes of life, and it gives firmness and stability. Right? There is, it is difficult to deal with the roller coaster of life, the highs and the lows One day, you think that success is right there. You're getting what you want. You're having the things come in. Your ship just arrived. All the stuff is happening. And the next day, it wasn't your ship, and it sunk anyways. And what am I doing with myself? And so that idea of the lows and the highs and then being close to each other, that is difficult to handle. And the closer those are together, the harder it is to handle. And the higher the highs and the lower the lows, the more it is difficult to handle. And yet, God is the one who chose every height and every low and every closeness of them together for you. That you might be tempered and fortified and strengthened on the anvil of his providence by the hammer of his word. And so this fortitude (coughs) makes it so that our moderation might be known to all men. No one knows about your moderation. Nobody knows about your self-control when everything's going right. They see your moderation and self-control when everything is falling apart and you're keeping your head. Fortitude allows for that. Fortitude settles the mind based upon the truth that gives a firmness of mind. It yields, guards, and supports many other virtues. If you are freaking out, you are unlikely to think about the proper way to deal with things. If you are firm and steady, you are far more likely to select the appropriate response to the situation. Fortitude makes a man intrepid. It allows for genuine courage when there is genuine danger. What is danger but risk? If we want to exercise dominion, we're going to take risk. We are going to choose to do things where we could suffer loss. Loss of reputation, loss of goods, loss of time. And so, courage, coming from fortitude, allows us to make choices, to cast the die, and to be willing to suffer the loss, 
and after losing, to bet again. Fortitude steals a man against suffering so that patience and long-suffering are clearly seen by others. Fortitude that comes from settled and habituated thought in the wisdom of God gives a man power to look upon injuries as minor, and thus he is able to forbear. If you think about things in the very short term, the very short term, the very short term, every minor offense, every minor injury, every little pain is a great loss of your present discomfort. And so, if instead you are able to look at a broader view, if you can look at the goal of the glory of God, and you can look at your life as though it were a timeline that you were looking at. But think about this. We look back at church history, and we see a timeline of men's lives, and they are small, and they are on eight and a half by 11 inch paper. These timelines seem short. To them, they were long. If your life were a timeline... What would you want to see on that timeline? Do you want to see this person had this problem and they freaked out? Three years later, had the courage to try something useful again? Or do you want the timeline to say, suffered magnanimously, took risk the next day, engaged in great works, was seen to be a person stable in the midst of loss? Right? What do you want the timeline to say? That sense of overmind, the ability to look down on history as though you were looking at something like a show, is the stability that comes from the wisdom that is revealed in God's Word. It gives fortitude to do that. The greatness of mind, overmind, the focus on the glory of God, any of that, those are all enabled in all conditions of life. By wisdom, granting fortitude. Page four. Fortitude enables a person to encounter danger with coolness and courage because risk is seen as a part of the dominion process that a dominion man goes through. You have been granted dominion. You have been commanded to subdue the world. You have been commanded to exercise that dominion, to work and to keep. Are you a dominion man? Or you've rejected the dominion mandate that God has given to you. If you are a dominion man, you will acknowledge that risk is unavoidable in this life and that all of your losses are predestined by the mighty hand of God. And so you can take them as for your good. Fortitude empowers a man to bear pain, which is, for example, when you take risk and you lose. Fortitude empowers a man to bear pain or adversity without murmuring depression, or despondency, knowing with firmness that all suffering comes from the hand of God for the purposes of God, which are inevitably and irrevocably for the wise man's good. So with all that in mind, I hope that motivates you to want to deal with and to think upon the details of what God commands. So there is wisdom from the law that encourages peace. And so what I've done is I've included here the fifth commandment and the sixth commandment, and I've tried to underline the parts that would be particularly helpful to meditate on for you to think about peaceable behavior. Peaceable behavior. So the places where peace is most undermined is when we don't give people the respect they are due, and when we do not care about stirring up anger, if we provoke to anger. Okay, so the sixth commandment relates to the provoking of anger. 
The fifth commandment relates to honor that's due. If we give people the honor they are due, and we avoid provocation and use peaceable and courteous speech, there is far less strife that will exist. Now Matthew 18, which we've carefully studied recently, is about the honor due to other people in conflict. Okay, Matthew 18 is about the honor due to other people in conflict. How you speak in those meetings would relate more to the sixth commandment. Okay? If, you, if, you, if you follow the process to the letter, and then you rebuke really harshly, and you don't let anything go, and you nitpick at everything, you're going to be provoking the other person to anger. So, fifth commandment. Wisdom of the law to encourage peace. The fifth commandment is, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God gives you. So who, who is father and mother? Father and mother are not only natural parents, but all superiors in age and gifts, and especially those who have a place of authority in one of the God-established authorities, the family, the church, or the commonwealth, the state. Right, the family, the church, or the state. Why are superiors styled father and mother? Because it will help the authority to express love and tenderness to the people under their authority. And it helps those who are under authority to willingly and cheerfully give obedience to the person in authority. So what's the general point of this commandment? 126, the bottom of the page. The general scope of the fifth commandment is the performance of those duties which we mutually owe in our several relations as inferiors, superiors, or equals. Okay, page five. What is the honor that inferiors owe to their superiors? All due reverence in heart, word, and behavior, prayer and thanksgiving for them, imitation of their virtues and graces, obedience to their lawful commands and counsels, due submission to their corrections, fidelity to defense and maintenance of their persons and authority, according to their station, and bearing with their infirmities and covering them in love, that so they may be an honor to them and to their government. Do you see how that kind of behavior towards a person in authority would dramatically encourage peace and make it so much easier if you have something to bring as a rebuke It would be so much easier to hear you if it's in the context of this kind of honor. Now, what are the things that would undermine your ability to resolve conflict as an inferior? Okay, well, if you envy the position of your superior, if you have contempt for their office, if you rebel against their lawful authority, if you curse, mock, or carry yourself in a way that's scandalous toward them, that would probably make it really hard to hear you bringing any complaints or rebukes. Now, how about if you're in authority? Husbands, parents, employers, church officers. Their duty is to love, pray for, and bless your inferiors, the people under your authority. To instruct, counsel, and admonish them. To countenance, commend, and reward them when they do good stuff. To discountenance, reprove, and chastise them when they do bad stuff. To protect and provide for them everything necessary for their soul and body. And by grave, wise, holy, and exemplary carriage, to bring honor to yourself and glory to God. Okay, that would be a godly ambition to seek that. Now, if you've ever been under somebody in their authority, and you've had to deal with somebody who is respectable, it's way easier to hear them correct you. 
if you have somebody who's over you in authority and they are a fool or they behave not in the way just listed, but alternately it becomes far more difficult. Okay, so think about hearing a correction from a superior with all the stuff we just said versus hearing correction from a superior with all of this other stuff. Inordinate self-seeking. Inordinate glory-seeking. Inordinate seeking of ease, profit, or pleasure. Unlawful commands. Impossible commands. Counseling evil. Discouraging good. Giving unjust correction. Constantly throwing you into ridiculous situations that are unbearable. Leaving you to suffer wrong and harm and danger. Provoking you to wrath. Treating you with injustice, indiscretion, over rigor, or remiss laxity. All of those things would make it far harder to hear a rebuke. So these are not peaceable behaviors. So if we think about our roles and our duties in our roles, one of the main ways we encourage peace is by seeking to do our duties in our places well. And then, when you mess up, when you fall, when you stumble, when you have an embarrassing mistake, people are so much more ready to forgive you quickly. If people think you're trying, it's so much different from when they think that you're not. Or when they think that you're trying to do things that are against them. Right? So making it credible that you desire what is good for the other person. That creates peace. Now, in particular, this being applied in the home by husbands and, again, by parents makes it so that the home becomes a tight-knit unit where forgiveness can occur quickly, where there can be unity. And on a church level, that's the same. On a workplace, that's the same. Now, a lot of our interactions are with people who don't have authority over us and who we don't have authority over. And especially in the church realm or in the work realm, there's going to be a lot of those kinds of interactions. And so how do you avoid causing people who are of an equal station with you from feeling like you're provoking them? Okay, well, first, the positive duties would be to regard, we're on page six, to regard their dignity, to regard their worth, to give honor to them, even though they are an equal, as though they are ahead of you. To rejoice in the fact that they have gifts that God has given to them. And to honor those gifts. To rejoice with them when they have advancement. As though it were your own gift or your own advancement. So what are the things that tend towards a fractiousness, a backbiting, a fighting, a whisper campaign, negativity amongst equals? Well, if you undervalue the other guy, you envy his gifts, and you say, oh, I should have that, or uh, angry that he has it instead of me. Grieving at the rewards he gets, his advancement, or seeking to usurp authority over him. Commanding an equal as though they were under your authority, rebuking them in a way that's inappropriate for your relative stations, that kind of thing. That grinds people's gears and provokes them to anger. It undermines peace. Now, one of the things that's frustrating about peaceable behavior is if you're a jerk, you can get through things way faster. Way faster. Right? Like, 
trying to be courteous and nice and kind and doing all this. It takes forever. Like forever. And one of the good things is that the law of God has a specific commandment and a specific promise. Okay? We're commanded to be honorable and to honor people and attach to it if you go back with me, I don't know, a page or two. Let's read the commandment. Two pages. The fifth commandment is, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God gives you. Okay, so the reason that's attached to the fifth commandment is, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God gives you. It's an express promise of long life and prosperity. You think honoring people takes time that I could be doing productive stuff and it uses up time that makes it so that I don't have as much time to do useful stuff in my life. God grants prosperity and long life as an associated promise with the honoring behavior. As far as it shall serve for God's glory and their own good, all such as keep this commandment. Now, first of all, none of us perfectly keep the commandment, so none of us deserve this blessing. But God, by the mediation of Christ, blesses us when we seek to apply this law by faith with rewards that we haven't properly earned. And if you apply this and God still takes your life early, guess what? He will reward you a hundredfold So now, we move into the Sixth Commandment. And the Sixth Commandment, which Jesus relates to anger and hatred, is you shall not kill. So what are the duties that are required in the Sixth Commandment? Well, we're supposed to do things that help to carefully preserve life. And we avoid occasions, temptations, and practices that would undermine life. We are to patiently bear the hand of God. We are to have a quietness of mind rather than this like anxious mindset we go God is sovereign he controls this is from his hand this is for my good and so we have a quietness of mind and a cheerfulness of spirit in the face of the difficulties that God brings our way we have a serious minded use of food and drink and medicine and sleep and labor and recreations right if we if we think that you know, eating, drinking, and being merry is the good life, and we're really upset when we have to deal with conflict resolution because it's taking up eat, drink, and merry time, right? Then we're going to not be very patient with people. We're going, this is not very merry. And so you start to get agitated. We're called to give charitable thoughts. In other words, we interpret things in a positive light where possible. We seek to love, seek the good of our neighbor. We're compassionate for them. We, we, we recognize the sufferings they have to deal with. We again have meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild, and courteous speeches and behavior. What is courteous speaking? Remember, we've talked about courteous being this idea of courteous. The root, the root there is court. Right? How would you talk to a judge in a court? If you were in the court of a king, how would you talk? It's courteous, honoring behavior. Honoring speech. And here's the deal. We are always in the presence of God, who is above all kings. We are to forbear and to be ready to reconcile. 
and patiently bear with and forgive injuries. We should give people good when they hand us a bag full of evil. And we should comfort and give succor to those who are in distress. And we should protect and defend the innocent. You see somebody else being attacked unjustly? Come to their aid. Helps to prevent, helps to prevent undue responses. And it reduces the violence of action of people who are abusing or tyrannizing. God alone knows how many sins have been stopped by the sound of footsteps coming down the hallway. One thirty-six, page seven. What are the sins forbidden in the sixth commandment? Well, the underlying part again. These are the things related to conflict resolution. Sinful anger is forbidden. Hatred of our brother or of our neighbor. Envy, desire of revenge, right? Who, who has revenge? God. Vengeance is God's. He gives lawful authority to the state to avenge, but to desire revenge on your own behalf is wicked and is a usurping of God and of his lawful magistrate. All excessive passions and distracting cares. Right? When you focus anxiously on some problem, right, it makes it so that you're more easily upset. Matthew 6 is a fantastic text to settle your mind. The beauty of what Jesus has to say about the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, what he talks about in terms of the provision of the hand of God there, are you not of more value than grass and birds? All excessive passions, distracting cares, immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, and recreations, provoking words, oppression, quarreling. It goes on to talk about strike, striking, wounding, all that. But these are the things that are more common. This provoking words, oppression, and quarreling. The wrongful use of authority is oppression. The quarreling, just creating fights without a just cause, without a proper basis. If we, we could pick a fight where we're right, but the cost of the fight is not worth it. And that's quarreling. So, I want to give to you a vision of three possible churches. Okay, there's the fragile church, the fortitude church, and the formalist church. A fragile church is loveless, bitter, brittle, lonely, and ineffective. Everybody's right about everything, and by everybody I mean one guy, because nobody else will hang out with that guy. Because he's right about everything and lets everybody know all the time. The Fortitude Church is a church that sacrificially loves by giving things up that don't require compromise. Sacrificial love to give things up that do not require compromise. They don't require you to participate in evil. They don't require you to dishonor God. As opposed to a brittleness, there is fortitude. And as opposed to loneliness, there is a community with unity. The word community, right, is calm with and unity. It's with unity. It's a group that shares something. 
What do we share? We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We have a law order that has been given to us so that we have the bond of peace wherein we can operate together. The covenantal order, the uniformity, is how we externally share in the unity. And there's a goal with progress. Okay, so the fragile church might be some people who have some really great doctrine, but they're not applying the law in an appropriate way that makes it so that they aren't able to make any progress to their goal. So they're ineffective. They might have the right goal, but they're ineffective because they're not applying the law with wisdom. A fortitude-based church is going to have progress toward the goal because it self-sacrificially, with fortitude, seeks the thing they're unified around with the rules that are agreed to to advance the glory of God. Progress. A formless church is going to have an emotive form of love. There'll be lots of cooing and sighing as you tell people about all the problems that you have. And if you go too far in a way that the unstated standards won't tolerate, there will be a weaponizing of empathy to make it so that you need to comply with the felt needs of others. The felt, not the described according to the law of God needs. Felt needs, rather than the law order needs. There will be a fake unity where lots of people are let in without any standards, so it is promiscuous, and no clearly defined goal will be given. So that is a formless, flan-like, jello, even jellyfish place. We want to avoid that. We also want to avoid the fragility that comes from not being willing to bear with things. So could you see how all the stuff we've studied over the last three weeks about conflict resolution could be abused to create a very difficult and fractious group? Could you see that? On the other side, can you see how that allows for a glorious transparency to bear with each other's weaknesses and to have a public way of dealing with problems when they don't get resolved? That's what we're called to. Now, those who are strongest in the faith are going to be most aware of problems. Because the more you know what the Word of God says, the more you're going to see problems everywhere. Water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink. And so that problem of seeing problems all over the place, you start to go, there's too much to do. How are we going to do it all? And you go, you can't, you can't do it all. God does it. God handles it. So what you do is you pick things to deal with in order from highest priority to lowest priority. You're intelligently choosing what's the biggest bang per dollar or per hour or per whatever for the problems we can solve. How can we most glorify God with the limited resource set we have? And God powerfully, supernaturally, just clears up a lot of it. He just providentially makes stuff go away. Things that we thought we'd never get to, they just solve themselves. There is blessing that falls on a people that proclaims the greatness of God and commits themselves to seeking to apply what God has commanded. So which one will you help to build? Which one will you help to guard? What have you already sworn to do? 
Costly conflict resolution is part of making and keeping a strong, not fragile, fortitude church. You cannot bear up under constant abuse or overuse of conflict resolution as explained in Matthew 18, but we can, in costly and self-sacrificial ways, go through conflict resolution in order to seek real peace. Deacon Schaefer is fond of some quote about being committed to the scandalous inefficiency of much discussion. And biblical conflict resolution is a commitment to much discussion. Scandalously, scandalously inefficient. Just scandalous. In order to avoid unnecessary conflict resolution, we must interpret each other charitably we must overlook many offenses and forbear with many insults and injuries. We must seek to resolve conflicts privately between individuals when possible and to bring others in that aren't officers as witnesses to allow the officers to do their public work. Sometimes this isn't possible. Sometimes you need to bring in an officer. Sometimes you need to bring in other people. Sometimes whatever. Okay, all of that. But we need to intelligently think about those things. And we need to be willing to do this work. And this all starts at home. You practice the way you want to resolve conflicts principally first at home. So husbands, wives, work through conflicts carefully with the scandalous inefficiency of much discussion. And do that with your children. Does that hurt? Does that hurt more? Do it with your children. And you will find that many of the problems get uprooted through the discussion, and sometimes there's a tying together of problems. You think, here's a sin problem, here's a sin problem, here's a sin problem. By resolving this one well, the other ones disappear or diminish. There is a way in which, as rational thinkers, when we realize the root problem of something, it often causes many fruits to disappear. So... One thing that I want to make sure to spend time on, and it's my intention, unless I'm overruled, at the future teaching here for a bit, I want to talk about the idea, and I'm not going to do it today, but I want to talk about the idea of how do we deal with people when they're coming in. There's, a, there's an immaturity to many believers. There's new converts. There's people coming out of churches where they haven't been taught well. How do we deal with that? What is, how do we patiently forbear and teach and not just go, here are all the things about covenant uniformity says to do. Do them all now or die. Kick. Right? Did they swim or not? How do we avoid that? Right? And so what I want to do is to talk about the process of, I want to talk about the process of how you go with through things with people from the more basic to the less basic. Okay? So we're going to talk about that and talk about the idea of helping children in the faith or novices in the faith to grow in a context of overlooking charity, forbearing, and at the same time, not leaving them to just languish in sin. Okay, so that's something that we'll talk about some. So I've been talking about the idea of the process of being confirmed in the faith as a child. I'll spend a little bit of time on that in the future. So I'm going to stand open now uh, for comments, questions, and objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. <coughs>